Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Ken Reads the Classics. Today, we have a special bonus episode, a short story by Mark Twain called A Dog's Tale. Now, with fair warning and due diligence, I must let you know that I adapted and edited this story quite heavily. It had an ending that I did not like, um, and so I decided to change it. So, without further ado, here is A Dog's Tale by Mark Twain, edited and adapted by Ken Davis. Chapter 1 My father was a St. Bernard, my mother was a collie, but I am a Presbyterian. This is what my mother told me. I do not know these nice distinctions myself. To me, they are only fine, large words, meaning nothing. My mother had a fondness for such. She liked to say them and see other dogs look surprised and envious, as wondering how she got so much education. Indeed, it was not real education. It was only show. She got the words by listening in the dining room and drawing room when there was company, and by going with the children to Sunday school and listening there. Whenever she heard a large word, she said it over to herself many times, and so was able to keep it until there was a dogmatic gathering in the neighborhood. Then she would get it off and surprise and distress them all. From pocket pup to mastiff, Rich rewarded her for all her trouble. If there was a stranger, he was nearly sure to be suspicious, and when he got his breath again, he would ask her what it meant, thinking he would catch her in a lie. However, she always told him what it meant, and when she told him, he was the one that looked ashamed, whereas he thought it was going to be her. The others were always waiting for this, and glad of it, and proud of her, for they knew what was going to happen, because they had their own personal experience with mother and her words. When she told the meaning of a big word, they were all so taken up with admiration that it never occurred to any dog to doubt if it was the right one. That was natural, because, for one thing, she answered up so promptly that it seemed like a dictionary speaking, and for another thing, where could they find out whether it was right or not? For she was the only cultivated dog there was. By and by, when I was older, she brought home the word unintellectual. She worked that word pretty hard all the week at different gatherings, making much unhappiness and despondency. It was at this time that I noticed something peculiar. During that week, she was asked for the meaning at eight different assemblages. Do you know she flashed out a fresh definition every time, which showed me that she had more presence of mind than culture, though I said nothing, of course. She had one word which she always kept on hand and ready, like a life preserver, a kind of emergency word to strap on when she was likely to get washed overboard in a sudden way. That was the word synonymous. 
If a stranger happened by, she would fetch out a long word which had its day weeks before and its prepared meanings long gone to her dump pile. It knocked him groggy for a couple of minutes, of course. Then he would come too. By that time, however, she would be way down wind on another tack and not expecting anything. So when he'd hail and ask her to cash in, I the only dog on the inside of her game, could see her canvas flicker a moment, but only just a moment. Then it would belly out, taut and full, and she would say, as calm as a summer's day, it's synonymous with supererogation, or some godless long reptile of a word like that, and go placidly about and skim away on the next tack, perfectly comfortable, you know and leave that stranger looking profane and embarrassed, and the initiated slatting the floor with their tails in unison, and their faces transfigured with holy joy. And it was the same with phrases. She would drag home a whole phrase, if it had a grand sound, and play it six nights in two matinees, and explain it a new way every time, which she had to, for all she cared for was the phrase. She wasn't interested in what it meant, and knew those dogs hadn't wit enough to catch her anyway. Yes, she was a daisy. She had such confidence in the ignorance of those creatures, she got so she wasn't afraid of anything. She even brought anecdotes that she heard the family and the dinner guests laugh and shout over. As a rule, she got the nub of one chestnut hitched onto another chestnut, where, of course, it didn't fit and hadn't any point. When she delivered the nub, she fell over and rolled on the floor and laughed and barked in the most insane way, while I could see that she was wondering to herself why it didn't seem as funny as it did when she first heard it. But no harm was done. The others rolled and barked too, privately ashamed of themselves for not seeing the point and never suspecting that the fault was not with them. There simply wasn't any point to see. You can determine by these things that she was of a rather vain and frivolous character. Still, she had virtues, and enough to make up, I think. She had a kind heart and gentle ways, and never harbored resentments for injuries done her, but put them easily out of her mind and forgot them. She taught her children her kindly way as well. From her we learn to be brave and prompt in time of danger, and not to run away, but face the peril that threatened friend or stranger, and help him the best we could without stopping to think what the cost might be to us. And she taught us not by words only, but by example, and that is the best way, and the surest way, and the most lasting way. Why, the brave things she did, the splendid things. She was just a soldier, and so modest about it. I recall a time when an opossum got lost and turned round and all upside up. This opossum opened her jaws and stretched her mouth open wide, hissing and a-screeching, scaring Lola and Lily something awful. Lola and Lily were two other dogs that lived in the area. Well, my mother started a-barking and a-wailing at this offending opossum, charging in for a tussle, then backing off, 
given that poor creature a chance to scurry away. This went on for a good spell till this opossum finally ran off. Mother had saved the day again. Mother would do things like that all the time. And well, you couldn't help admiring her and you couldn't help imitating her either. Not even a King Charles Spaniel could remain entirely despicable in her society. So as you see, there was more to her than her education. Chapter 2 By and by, time passed, and at last, I was well grown, and sadly, I was sold. I would be taken away, never to see her again. This broke my poor mother's heart, mine too, if truth be told. We cried, but she comforted me as well as she could. She said we were sent into this world for a wise and good purpose, and must do our duties without repining. Take our life as we might find it, live it for the best good of others, and never mind about the results. They were not our affair. She said men who did like this would have a noble and beautiful reward by and by in another world, and although we animals would not go there, to do well and right without reward would give to our brief lives a worthiness and dignity which in itself would be a reward. She had gathered these things from time to time when she went to the Sunday school with the children and had laid them up in her memory more carefully than she had done with those other words and phrases. She studied them deeply for her good and ours. One may see by this that she had a wise and thoughtful head for all there was so much lightness and vanity in it. So we said our farewells and looked our last upon each other through our tears. The last thing she said, keeping it for the last to make me remember it the better, I think. The last thing she said was, In memory of me, when there is a time of danger to another, do not think of yourself, think of your mother, and do as she would do. Do you think I could forget that? No. Chapter 3 It was such a charming home, my new one, a fine great house with pictures and delicate decorations and rich furniture and no gloom anywhere, but all the wilderness of dainty colors lit up with flooding sunshine and the spacious grounds around it and the great garden, old greensward and noble trees and flowers, no end. I was the same as a member of the family. They loved me and petted me and did not give me a new name, but called me by my old one that was dear to me because my mother had given it me, Eileen Mavernine. She got it out of a song. The Greys knew that song and said it was a beautiful name. Mrs. Gray was thirty, and so sweet and so lovely you cannot imagine it. Sadie was ten, and just like her mother, just a darling, slender little copy of her, with auburn tails down her back and short frocks. The baby was a year old, and plump, and dimpled, and fond of me, 
and never could get enough of hauling on my tail and hugging me and laughing out its innocent happiness. Mr. Gray was thirty-eight and tall and slender and handsome, a little bald in the front, alert, quick in his movements, business-like, prompt, decided, unsentimental, and with that kind of trim, chiseled face that just seems to glint and sparkle with frosty intellectuality. He was a renowned scientist. I do not know what the word means, but my mother would know how to use it and get effects. She would know how to depress a rat terrier with it and make a lapdog look sorry he came. But that is not the best one. The best one was laboratory. My mother could organize a trust on that one that would skin the tax collars off the whole herd. The laboratory was not a book, nor a picture, nor a place to wash your hands in, as the college president's dog said. No, that is the lavatory. The laboratory is quite different and is filled with jars and bottles and electrics and wires and strange machines. Every week, other scientists came there and sat in the place and used the machines and discussed and made what they called experiments and discoveries. I often went along, too, and stood around and listened and tried to learn for the sake of my mother and in loving memory of her. Although it was a pain to me as realizing what she was losing out of her life and I gaining nothing at all. For try as I might, I was never able to make anything out of it at all. Other times, I lay on the floor in the mistress's workroom and slept, she gently using me for a footstool, knowing the caresses pleased me. Other times, I spent an hour in the nursery and got well tussled and made happy. Other times, I watched by the crib there when the baby was asleep and the nurse out for a few minutes on the baby's affairs. Other times I romped and raced through the grounds in the garden with Sadie till we were tired out, then slumbered on the grass in the shade of a tree while she read a book. Other times I went visiting among the neighbor dogs, for there were some most pleasant ones not far away, and one very handsome and courteous and graceful one, a curly-haired Irish setter by the name of Robin Adair, who was a Presbyterian like me and belonged to the Scotch minister. The servants in our house were all kind to me and were fond of me, and so, as you see, mine was a pleasant life. There could not be a happier dog that I was, nor a gratefuler one. I will say this for myself, for it is only the truth. I tried in all ways to do well and right and honor my mother's memory and her teachings and earn the happiness that had come to me as best I could. By and by came my little puppy, and then my cup was full. My happiness was perfect. He was the dearest little waddling thing and so smooth and soft and velvety and had such cunning little awkward paws and such affectionate eyes, and such a sweet and innocent face. His hair was red and curly and long. It made me so proud to see how the children and their mother adored it, and fondled it, and exclaimed over every little wonderful thing it did. 
The other mothers came with their puppies too. There were quite a few puppies with long, red, and curly hair as well, but not all. They would all tell stories, some of bravery, others of hunting. For my part, I had no such stories to tell. The children were well behaved, and nothing truly exciting happened at the house. Nor was I a hunting dog. I had no affinity nor talent to chase other creatures around and about. I felt disappointed and left out. Putting all that aside, it did seem to me that my life was just too lovely. Chapter 4 Then came the winter. One day I was standing a watch in the nursery. That is to say, I was asleep on the bed. The baby was asleep in the crib, which was alongside the bed, on the side next to the fireplace. It was the kind of crib that has a lofty tent over it made of gauzy stuff that you can see through. The nurse was out, and we two sleepers were alone. A spark shot out from the wood fire, and it lit on the slope of the tent. I suppose a quiet interval followed, then a scream from the baby awoke me, and there was that tent flaming up towards the ceiling. Before I could think, I sprang to the floor in my fright, and in a second was halfway to the door. But in the next half-second, my mother's farewell was sounding in my ears, and I was back on the bed again. I reached my head through the flames and dragged the baby out by the waistband and tugged it along, and we fell to the floor together in a cloud of smoke. I snatched a new hold and dragged the screaming little creature along and out the door and around the bend of the hall, and was still tugging away, all excited and happy and proud, when the master's voice shouted, "'Be gone, you cursed beast!' I jumped to save myself. Then the nurse's voice rang wildly out. The nursery's on fire. And the master rushed away in that direction. The master's shout hurt me to my core. The pain in my heart was cruel. But no matter. I must not lose any time. He might come back at any moment. So I ran to the other end of the hall to where I heard them say there was a dark little stairway leading up into a garret where old boxes and such things were kept, and people rarely went there. I managed to climb up there. Then I searched my way through the dark among the piles of things and hid in the secretest place I could find. It was foolish to be afraid there, yet still I was, so afraid that I held in and hardly even whimpered though it would have been such a comfort to whimper, because that eases the pain, you know. But I could lick my paws, and that did some good. For half an hour there was a commotion downstairs, and shoutings and rushing footsteps, and then there was quiet again, quiet for some minutes, and that was grateful to my spirit, for then my fears began to go down, and fears are worse than pains, oh, much worse. Then came a sound that froze me. They were calling me, calling me by my name, hunting for me. It was muffled by distance, but that could not take the terror out of it, and it was the most dreadful sound to me that I had ever heard. 
It went all about, everywhere, down there, along the halls, through all the rooms, in both stories, and in the basement and the cellar, then outside, and farther and farther away, then back, nearer and nearer to me, and all about the house again, and I thought it would never, never stop. But at last it did, hours and hours after the vague twilight of the garret had long ago been blotted out by black darkness. Then in that blessed stillness my terrors fell little by little away, and I was at peace and slept. It was a good rest I had, but I woke before the twilight had come again. I was feeling fairly comfortable, and I could think out a plan now. I made a very good one, which was to creep down, all the way down the back stairs, and hide behind the cellar door, and slip out and escape when the ice man came at dawn, while he was inside filling the refrigerator. Then I would hide all day, and start on my journey when night came. My journey to, well, anywhere, where they would not know me and betray me to the master. I was feeling almost cheerful now. Then suddenly I thought, why, what would life be without my puppy? That was despair. There was no plan for me. I saw that. I must stay where I was, stay and wait and take what might come. It was not my affair. That was what life is. My mother had said it. Then, well, the calling began again. All my sorrows came back. I said to myself, the master will never forgive. I did not know what I had done to make him so bitter and so unforgiving, yet I judged it was something a dog could not understand but which was clear to a man and dreadful. They called and called, days and nights, it seemed to me, so long that the hunger and thirst near drove me mad, and I recognized that I was getting very weak. When you are this way, you sleep a great deal, and I did. Once I woke in an awful fright, it seemed to me that the calling was right there in the garret, and so it was. It was Sadie's voice, and she was crying. My name was falling from her lips, all broken. Poor thing. And I could not believe my ears for the joy of it when I heard her say, Come back to us. Oh, come back to us and forgive. It is all so sad without her. I broke in with such a grateful little yelp, and the next moment Sadie was plunging and stumbling through the darkness and the lumber and shouting for the family to hear, She's found! She's found! Chapter 5 The days that followed, well, they were wonderful. The mother and Sadie and the servants, why, they just seemed to worship me. They couldn't seem to make me a bed that was fine enough. As for food, they couldn't be satisfied with anything but game and delicacies that were out of season. And every day the friends and neighbors flocked in to hear about my heroism. That was the name they called it by, and it means agriculture. 
I remember my mother pulling it on a kennel once and explaining it in that way, but didn't say what agriculture was, except that it was synonymous with intramural incandescence. Why, a dozen times a day, Mrs. Gray and Sadie would tell the tale to newcomers and say, I risked my life to save the babies, and both of us had burns to prove it. And then the company would pass me round and pet me and exclaim about me, and you could see the pride in the eyes of Sadie and her mother. And this was not all the glory, no. The master's friends came, a whole twenty of the most distinguished people, and had me in the laboratory, and discussed me as if I was kind of a discovery. Some of them said it was wonderful in a dumb beast, the finest exhibition of instinct they could call to mind. The master said, with vehemence, it's far above instinct, it's reason, and many a man, privileged to be saved and go with you and me to a better world by right of its possession, has less of it than this poor silly quadruped that's ordained to perish. Then he laughed and said, Why, look at me, I'm sarcasm. Bless you with all my grand intelligence. The only thing I inferred was that the dog had gone mad and was destroying the child. Whereas, but for the beast's intelligence, its reason, I tell you, the child would have perished. They disputed and disputed, and I was the very center subject of it all. But this was not all. For nowadays, when all the dogs from parts all round would come to tell their stories, why, they'd beg me to tell mine. So I did, with relish. For I often worked in big words to add gravitas to the tale. I would add words like supererogation, unintellectual, and of course, agriculture. I was a hero after all. I explained how attentive I could be even while sleeping, why a Presbyterian like myself could practically sleep with both my eyes open and seeing all as if I was wide awake. I told them how I, being not just a Presbyterian, but also a hero, I knew that with a wood-burning fire, a good dog like myself, must be specially aware of tents covering cribs while the nurse was out. I mean, it was intramural incandescence, plain and simple. I'd tell them how my knowledge of agriculture taught me the best way to pull a baby from a burning crib was to grab it by the waistband. I added they should watch out for Master, because he doesn't know what to do with a Presbyterian hero dog like me, saving his own precious child. He might commence to yelling and screaming before the others can bring calm to the house. All the dogs, the Spaniels, the Bulldogs, the Presbyterians, and the Thoroughbreds would listen intently as I told my story. Yes, it was quite an assemblage of hounds. Even the handsome Robin Adair attended. I wished my mother could know that this grand honor had come to me. It would have made her proud. As for Robin Jr., for that was my puppy's name, Robin Jr., he would listen attentively while I, 
remembering that I did not have my mother's great presence of mind, I would do my best to give the same meaning to each word so as not to get caught in a trap. My dear mother was born with full-bellied-out sails. I was not. After all this, and with spring arriving all a sudden like, a fateful day came when my own puppy was to be sold. It broke my heart, just as it did my mother's not so many years ago. I commenced to console in him as my mother did me. I said, We were sent into this world for a wise and good purpose, and must do our duties without repining. Take our life as we might find it, live it for the best good of others, and never mind about the results. They were not our affair. I said, Men who did like this would have a noble and beautiful reward by and by in another world, and although we animals would not go there, to do well and right without reward would give to our brief lives a worthiness and dignity which in itself would be a reward. The last thing I said was, In memory of me and your grandmother, when there is a time of danger to another, do not think of yourself, think of us, and do as we would do. That was A Dog's Tale by Mark Twain, edited and adapted by Ken Davis. I certainly hope you enjoyed it, and please leave a review. Reviews are how others find these podcasts. It also gives me some feedback on how I can improve. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time on Ken Reads the Classics.